Good evening. Good to see everyone. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for coming and joining us this New Year's Eve and Happy New Year to you. So I always um, have a special place in my heart uh, for New Year's Eve and it's largely due to the fact because it was this time of year that God uh, drew me to himself. I grew up in a Christian home and made a profession of faith probably at about age four, I received Christ into my heart. Uh, but then in my elementary years and junior high years, didn't want anything to do uh, with Christ. So where that left me, uh, I'm not sure. I'm glad I didn't pass away in that state. Uh, and God was faithful my freshman year of high school uh, to draw me unto himself. And I think I finally started listening uh, at that point uh, in, in my life. My youth pastor, uh, he asked us to do uh, this one thing. He said, I want you to write down three things that you want God to do uh, in your life this year. Put it in an envelope, put your address on it, and I'll mail it to you uh, a year later. And so for some reason, I wrote down, number one is, God, I want you to be closer uh, to me than uh, my brother. And it was uh, the Wednesday night right before uh, New Year's. And my brother's 22 months older than me, and he was real in my life but God wasn't real in my life at that uh, particular time. And then it was four days later or so, it was January 4th, I was walking home from the basketball gym. I saw some kids playing out uh, in the yard in Southern Oregon. Uh, it's not like it is here. Uh, the weather's still uh, warm enough where you can be out pretty much most days of the year. You just have to tolerate being wet, but if you can tolerate the rain, you can be out. And these kids were playing out in the yard I just felt God's voice. He spoke to me. Uh, it was the first time I really had felt God's voice in my life. And Eric, while you wanted nothing to do with me, I wanted everything to do with you. And this visual of these kids playing, it, it hit me. I grew up uh, knowing the love of God and wanting nothing to do with it, but yet God continued to, to love me. And that changed my life. And I woke up uh, the next morning with the strangest feeling that came over me. I actually wanted to read my Bible. I never had wanted to read my Bible. It was always something that you have to do, that you're forced to do, but nothing that I wanted to do. I started reading in Matthew chapter 1 with the genealogy of Christ, and I just kept reading and reading and reading. And so I remember that this, this time of year, and it reminds me of God's faithfulness. And I think there is something to this time of year that causes us to, to stop and reflect a little bit and go, you know, what, what is it that uh, I look back on in this year where there's a void, where I desire God to, to bring a change in my life? And as we go into 2015, sometimes uh, we honestly are really looking for hope, and there's more discouragement that can set into our lives than, than hope, a godly expectation of the future. And we know that good year's resolutions don't last very long. I was, after Chance was leading worship, I thought maybe I should go to the gym instead of teaching this Bible study. Let me, let me run over to 24-hour fitness. But a lot of times they don't last till January 21st, do they? But so what's our hope that going into 2015? In Lamentations 3, an odd place to find hope for the new year, Jeremiah the prophet is about as low as you can get on the human level as you read that. He's depressed. He would be clinically described as depressed. And then he says, this is what I recall to mind and I have hope that with God's mercies we're not consumed. We know because God's merciful that we're not going to be consumed. And then he says, God's mercy is new every morning and great is his faithfulness. One thing we know about last year and one thing we know about 2015 is that God's mercy will be new every morning. Isn't that a great hope? 
Why does it need to be new every morning? Because I need new mercy every morning. We need new mercy every morning. Every day, God's going to be merciful, and every day, God is going to be faithful uh, to us. So pray that God really meets you in a special uh, way tonight. This is a little bit different service uh, for us, as we're going to be looking at a variety of scriptures uh, tonight that point us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christmas time, we celebrate the first coming of Christ, which is wonderful and important and paramount that we celebrate his coming, his death, his resurrection, his ascension at New Year's Eve as we are going to be celebrating the anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for your grace in my life to draw me unto yourself uh, this time of year, so many years ago as a young man. Uh, Thank you for for doing that and continuing to, to be faithful Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us as a church family over this last year. Thank you for how you've brought people into the kingdom. Lord, how you've touched marriages. Lord, you've blessed us with new births. Lord, new children in our fellowship and our church family. So many ways, and we give you thanks for that. Thank you for your faithful provision to us physically and both spiritually. We can easily lose sight of what's important in this world. And Jesus, we know your promise is to return. And we just pray tonight that there would be clarity, that there wouldn't be confusion, that the enemy wouldn't come in and and bring any confusion, but there would be edification. We also pray for a great awakening that would happen in our lives, that we would be awake spiritually for our congregation, God, that we would be engaged with you, growing in you, being fruitful, abiding in the vine. We pray for the body of Colorado Springs as a whole. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us? And we desperately desire to see you work and move in the lives of those that don't know you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in three different uh, sections of scripture tonight. We're going to start with Revelation chapter 13. And then we're going to look at Ezekiel 38. And then also we're going to look at Matthew 24. Our ETA, our estimated time of arrival to finish this study is midnight with those passages. (laughs) So Revelation 13, uh, verse 11. I want to bring back to you a word that may be familiar, or it may be a brand new word for you tonight. It's the word Maranatha. And it's an Aramaic word that was used in the early church, and it means that the Lord is coming, or the Lord come quickly. The early church was under tremendous persecution from the Roman Empire. They were being demanded to declare that Caesar is Lord, is God, and they wouldn't do so. So many times they were killed, they were persecuted, and this word Maranatha, they would use as their greeting to one another, to provide encouragement, and it lifted their spirits. In the midst of this tremendous difficulty, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming, Maranatha. And in these dark days that we live in, we can lose sight of what's most important, and it's the glorious hope that Jesus Christ is coming. So Maranatha, that's the title of our message tonight, the Lord come quickly. It's the prayer of the church. As Jesus, we're looking for you to come. We're desiring for you to come. This is an important truth that we find throughout Scripture. Jesus told us 
when he departed, that he would return in this same manner. In Acts 1 verse 11, you don't have to turn there, Christ had ascended, the angel comes and speaks to the disciples that are gazing to the heavens, says, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So it's the same way that Jesus ascended, he's going to descend. If you believe in the promises of God, you have to believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. As you read the scriptures, the culmination of God's story, the culmination of all human events is the second coming of Jesus Christ when he descends upon the Mount of Olives. There's no doubt about this. There's no question about it biblically. There's a lot of questions about some of the details around it, but the truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ is clearly taught in Scripture, and it's to be the expectation of all believers. Jesus taught us that no one knows the day or the hour of the second coming of Jesus Christ except for the Father. The Father is the one that has that information. The Son doesn't know. The angels don't know. So if the Son doesn't know and the angels don't know, and someone comes to you and says, I know the day or the hour of the second coming of Jesus Christ, you know they're a false teacher. You know that they're a heretic. But what Jesus did tell us is that we're to live our lives with the expectation that he could come at any given time. In fact, Paul, at the end of his life, writing to 2 Timothy, he said there's a crown of righteousness that was laid up for the Apostle Paul, but also to everyone who loves his appearing. Church, what an easy crown for us to be able to receive. God says, I've got a special crown for you that I'll give you for all of eternity that you can lay down in worship if you simply love the appearing of my son. If you live your life with this expectation of looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. It sounds simple, doesn't it? But in the reality of daily life, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus is going to return. It just seems like life's going to always continue the way that it has been. There'll be generation after generation after generation, but there will be a generation, whether it's ours or a generation after us, that will experience the rapture of the church, the second coming of Jesus Christ. I think it does affect the way that we live out our Christian life, whether we believe if Jesus Christ can come back or not. There's a spirit of expectation. There's a purity that comes in our lives when we start to think that Christ could come and return at any given moment. Think of a reunion that you looked forward to with great anticipation. We live in a great military city. Many of you serve in our armed forces. Many of you have made tremendous sacrifices with your families. There's one family that has been here for many years at our church that came and asked for prayer Christmas Eve because mom is actually serving in our military. Dad serves in the military as well, but it was mom's turn to be deployed, and she's in Afghanistan for six months. And so here's dad with all the kids saying, could you pray for mom over in Afghanistan? Could you pray for us? And I was joking around with dad saying, how's the cooking going? Are you learning some new recipes? He's like, yep, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. That's a huge sacrifice, isn't it? You know, for husband, wife to be deployed overseas. And many of you families have done that. We've all seen the images 
of a soldier who's been deployed from his family, from her family for 18 months, maybe even longer, and comes back and is reunited with their family, reunited with their spouse, reunited with their kids. Can you imagine that kind of anticipation that would take place? Maybe your number one personal hero in any kind of setting, maybe it's in the work professional setting, you have a, a hero, maybe it's in a sports setting, maybe it's in a musical setting, Okay, we'll even go there a little bit. Maybe it's even in a movie setting. You have a particular actor or actress that you really look up to, but someone that you would just really long to have a one-hour meeting with and the kind of anticipation that you would wait for that, that meeting. How much more so are those just little examples of we are longing for and waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Everything that you desire to be made right in this world and in this life is only going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the one that's going to make things right. He's the one that we're looking to. So we're going to talk about some specific signs tonight. And as we look at these signs, these are things that we can point to to say that we're getting closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. Like I said, I don't have any intention to try to name a a day or an hour But we can look at some of these broad signs and see how they're being fulfilled before our eyes, that we're getting closer and closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. I think this is a good habit for you to get into, is to read current events through the lens of Scripture. The Bible isn't absent from present day. Much of the Bible prophecy has been fulfilled but there's some of it that hasn't been fulfilled. The Bible does speak of future events. One of the huge prophecies in the Bible was about the rebirth of the nation of Israel that took place in 1948. So Christians prior to that were looking to a future time when God would reestablish the nation of Israel. That's not too much in the distant past, and there's things like that that remain in the future. So in Revelation 13, verse 11, one of these things that we find in the tribulation period is the mark of the beast. And the technology for the mark of the beast is well underway. And I think once again, 2014 has provided huge leaps forward towards what eventually will be a reality in this tribulation period. So let's look at verse 11, and then we'll read down to verse 18. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. We see the counterfeit attack of the enemy. He's like a lamb, which is Jesus Christ, but he spoke like a dragon, the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. And he exercises all authority over the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, who dead with, whose deadly wound was healed. So all authority of the first beast and causes the earth, those who dwell in it, to worship the first beast. So we find the world brought together with a one world religion. And this supernatural event that takes place deceives people. In verse 13, he performs great signs so that even makes fire from, come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So just because something's spiritual and supernatural doesn't mean it's from God. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do 
in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. The image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So those that won't worship the image of the beast are put to death. And here's our sign. Here's the mark of the beast that we see the technology is completely in place. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, which I find interesting because some in past generations would say, well, there's no slavery. Well, we find now that there's more slaves than maybe that there's ever been at any other point in history. Human trafficking is literally off the charts. So rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. So you get this mark of the beast, and it's either on your right hand or it's on your forehead. Now, what does this mark do for you? And no one will be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast. So the mark will have the name of the beast or the number of his name. So his name also has a number attached to it. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is 666. Satan is always a counterfeiter of the work of God. God is the one who first marked people. In Ezekiel 9, 3 through 5, in the Old Testament, says this, Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the rider's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. So the faithful that were grieved over the abominations, God gave a mark to. God says, I want you to mark them that they belong to me. This is more than just an economic statement. This is an allegiance to the beast. This mark is one of ownership. And so the world's taking on this mark of the beast, this one world religious system, and what comes with it is economics. No one in the whole entire world can buy or sell without this mark on the hand and on the forehead. So past generations would go, how in the world could some kind of mark that's on your right hand or on your forehead be able to buy or sell? And can you imagine in the time of John, who first received this from the Lord, the revelation of Jesus Christ, buying and selling was like, here's my cow, you know, here's some corn, here's some things that I've made. And it was this bartering system that, that took place. It's really in the near future that we've found an ability to be able to buy and sell through the electronic system, through the digital system. It first began, you know, with our credit cards and, and now more and more of it is taking place. What do we have that's been introduced just in the last few months? Apple Pay, right? And so now... Apple has a mechanism inside of our farts, our farts moans. <laughs> wow. <laughs> your, your smartphone does that too? <laughs> and this is really 
nothing new for the phone to be able to, to do this. This technology has been out for a little period of time. But all of a sudden, what becomes in view is we're moving very quickly towards why not just put uh, a chip into your hand? Why not just put a chip in, into your forehead? I'm sure that you're aware, but credit card fraud is a huge issue. So I want to be the devil's advocate for you for just a moment because every bad idea is usually presented as a good idea that's going to solve a lot of world problems. So at some point in the future, this is going to be presented to the world in a way that it's too good for them to refuse. And this may be some of the logic that comes to them is that there will no longer be any more credit card fraud that will take place. This was an article that was written earlier this year, and and it was entitled that the United States of America suffers the most credit card fraud than anywhere else in the world. And here's the key points. The cost of global payment credit card fraud grew 19% last year, and this is speaking of 2013, to reach $14 billion. The cost of U.S. payment card fraud grew 29%, to $7.1 billion. In the rest of the world, card fraud grew by 11% to $6.8 billion. So the United States almost has half of the world's credit card fraud. You think about this for just a moment. Who pays for this? And the first response is, well, the banks pay for it. Most of us have probably experienced this on a credit card or a debit card, you go to your bank account information and you're like, I didn't do this. What, what in the world is this charge? And so you, you call your bank, you call your credit card, you call your debit card, and they take it off and they reimburse that. And sure, the bank is picking up some of those costs, but ultimately it goes back to the person that's buying the product. The, the prices go up in the stores in order to cover that credit card fraud. Now, if you have this technology inside of your hand and inside of your forehead, it is very difficult to commit credit card fraud. You following me? And so the technology is going to be be such so you're doing something online. You're, You're buying something on Amazon Prime. You know, you just flash it here and bing, bing, bing. There it is on your account. You go to Starbucks and you're like, feeling a little groggy today. Oh, you got the mark. Bing. And you're, you're good to go. I remember uh, when uh, this dates me a little bit. So if high school students, you know, but w- when I was growing up, there came a point where the, the bar scanners actually came into existence to where at the grocery store, you could s- scan something. The checker could scan something instead of having to type in all the numbers. So there was a point where you'd go with all of your stuff with your mom at the grocery store and, and the, the checkers were really fast. They'd grab it, the back of the cereal, and it'd be all those numbers, and they grab the next one. And then someone came up with this idea of the bar scanner, and, and my mom knew Revelations 13, and she was really nervous. She's like, this is the mark of the beast. I don't think we can use the bar scanner. <laughs> I'm like, mom, I think it's okay. And she's like, I bet there's 666 in those barcodes, and this is, this is really going to be a problem. 
I don't think you've got to freak out. I don't think that you've got to, you know, not use Apple Pay necessarily or, or those kind of things. But beware and understand that these are signs of the times that are ultimately going to move towards this direction. So it would solve credit card fraud. Another thing that it would solve is tax evasion and, and tax fraud. How big of a deal is tax fraud in the United States of America? There's been some news reports in 2014 that says tax fraud is going to be what bankrupts our country. It's epidemic. If you're not sure about this or you're confused about this, go to the news this week. Uh, the New York congressman, Michael Grimm, pleads guilty to tax evasion. He's the congressman of New York and gross tax evasion. This is throughout, everywhere possible, everywhere that you can look in, in the United States of America, there is tax fraud. Uh, some of the, the reports that have been given is in the range of $450 million that the American public under reports their taxes. So this is what you should report, but the American public says, I'm going to report this. Not to mention when your social security number gets stolen and your identity gets stolen and someone then puts a, in a their taxes, and it's not you at all, and they get reimbursed those taxes. Our government admittedly says they really don't have a defense towards this, and criminals know it, and they're just cleaning out the government hand and fist. Well, guess what? You put this chip in your hand, you put it in your forehead, you don't have any more tax evasion. The, the government has great incentive at some point to put this in. Personally, this is just my opinion, so, you know, Keep that in mind when I say this. What is going to drive some of these type of changes? I think it's going to be poverty. I think it's going to be that there's so much starvation and difficulty throughout the world that people are going to accept this because they're going to go, you know what, these are going to save lives. These are going to, going to save problems. We're not going to have credit card anymore. We're not going to have tax evasion. These are the things that are going to help out society, and you, you would be foolish to not accept this and, and to enjoy this. One I think that's very sad, but is one that would also help clear this up, is kidnapping. Human trafficking is the number two trade in the world behind drugs. So drugs is number one, and human trafficking is number two. It's estimated that 2.4 million people right now are under human captivity. 2.4 million today are under human ca captivity, and 80% of them are sex slaves. So of those slaves, 80% of them are sex slaves. Inside of the, the United States of America, that they estimate that every single day that there's 58,000 children that are kidnapped every single day. This is a huge deal. I think every parent is aware of it. If you take the time to look at the news, I looked at the, some stuff today in Park City, Utah. There's an 11-year-old boy uh, that was picked up. If you've been to Park City, Utah, I lived in Salt Lake for a few years. It's a nice little ski town. We're not talking about a bad area of the country. And thankfully, the 11-year-old boy got away. But if you have elementary age kids, it's something that you're, you're aware of. It's something that you understand is a real possibility. And if there is a chip that's put in your son or daughter's right hand or your forehead that can track their location at all times, you go, this is great for a lot of reasons. It's, it's great because if they ever got kidnapped, and it's also great because I was a teenager once too, 
and uh, I'll know exactly where they're at at all times. I'm sure some of you are already taking advantage of that uh, with your teenager's smartphone. You're like, they don't know it, but I'm tracking their phone. Hey, where are you at? Oh, I'm at Johnny's. No, you're not. You're not at Johnny's. You're, you're hanging out with your girlfriend, Susie, and you're grounded for six months. How do they know? You know? And so you can begin to see all of these societal problems that could be quote-unquote fixed through this, but the technology is there. And there would have been many generations that would have studied the scriptures that would have gone, I don't understand how you could buy or sell uh, without this mark. So that's one sign that we look at tonight. Now let's go to Ezekiel 38. And I think this is just a really fascinating chapter when it comes to biblical prophecy these are sections of scripture to, to keep in view when you're looking at current events and Bible prophecy. Ezekiel 36 speaks of the rebirth of the nation of Israel and God bringing into inhabitants a place that was wilderness. And we've really seen that take place with, with the nation of Israel since May of 1948. On this New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2014, Israel's population hit 8.3 million. 8.3 million from 1948. For a Middle Eastern country, it is extremely blessed by God in a supernatural way. If you go to Israel, you don't feel uncomfortable or unsafe you're walking around and you're going, this is amazing, the kind of prosperity that has come to Israel. When you're walking on the streets of Tel Aviv, it's unlike any city in the United States of America. I mean, it's amazing how that it has been blessed by God and that as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And so you can read that in chapter 36. Chapter 37 talks about dry bones coming back to life. Again, speaking of the nation of Israel how God's bringing them back to life. And then chapter 38 speaks of this yet future time where there's this alliance of nations that come against the nation of Israel. And when these nations come together against Israel, the end of the chapter says that God stands up with his judgment. So we'll read through this chapter and highlight things. And what I want us to then look at is Russia's part to play in Ezekiel 38. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh in Meshach and Tubal and the prophecies against them. So this is describing Russia, Gog and Magog. And then the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. These are the key cities of historical Russia. When you look at Gog and Magog, it clearly leads to what is present-day Russia. So at some point, present-day Russia is going to do what we read in this chapter. And say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, O prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all of your army, horses, and horsemen, and splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So God's the one that's ultimately doing this. God is putting a hook into their jaws and bringing them down to Israel 
to attack Israel. It's God setting the stage for the final events. Persia, which is Iran, so it's important to note that. Ethiopia, which also includes uh, the area of Sudan. Ethiopia was a much larger area historically than what we know currently today. And Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. So we find Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya coming together with Russia in this attack, as well as Gomer. And there's thoughts on exactly what is Gomer, something Germany, something Turkey, possibly both. And all of its troops, the horses of Torgarma from far north, and all of its troops, many people are with them. So this is a large army that's gathered together, all with the purpose of destroying Israel. Have you noticed this happening in the world? That anti-Semitism is on the rise. There's many nations that hate each other, but are being joined together in an alliance simply with the purpose to destroy Israel. There's a spiritual element to that. Ultimately, that's what's going to set the stages for the nations of the world to, to come against God and come against Israel. So verse 7 Prepare yourself and be ready, and all of your companies that are gathered about you, and be on guard for them. After many days you will be visited, in latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. So this is speaking of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. So Israel has come back from the sword. They've been regathered, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell in safely. Church, that's what we're seeing today with Israel. They've been drawn back to the promised land out of all of these nations, and they dwell safely in Israel. How do the Jews dwell safely in Israel? It's such a small piece of land with so many enemies, but yet God's hands upon them, and they're able to dwell safely. The safest place on the earth may be Israel. It may be a decent place to consider moving if you were allowed to. In verse 9, you will descend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all of your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. So this is what Russia and this alliance of nations is thinking. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell in safety, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And if you study Israel closely, and you hear the hearts of the people in Israel, they really do want peace. That's, that's what they desire. Even to the point where at times they consent things where you're like, why are you giving up land? Why are you willing to consent this? And they'll say things, and you read it in the articles, we just want peace. We're, we're tired of dwelling in, in conflict. We'll go up against a land of unwalled villages, those who dwell in safety. And this is why they go, in verse 12, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba and Dedan, which is Sheba, Saudi Arabia, Dedan is north of Yemen, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take away great plunder? 
Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell in safety, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, Russia is far north of Israel, you and many peoples, all of them riding on horses, a great company, a mighty army, you will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days. So God's saying, this is at the, the end of times, that I will bring you against my land. God is ultimately bringing them so that the nations may know me when I'm hallowed in you, O God, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I've spoken in the former days by my servants, the prophets Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. And this is where we see God's judgment in verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time when God, Gog comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord, that my fury will show my face. So God says, when this happens, this is when my judgment's gonna fall. This is when it's gonna, gonna come and I'm gonna show my glory. So let's look at some current events that have taken place in 2014 with Russia. This year has been a huge year for Russia. Putin has decided to do what? To take parts of Ukraine. Very strategic thing happened at the beginning part of 2014 for Russia, and that was Crimea. And I would encourage you to go online, go to Google Maps and type in Russia and get into Ukraine Get into the Black Sea and you'll find Crimea is this peninsula that's connected to Ukraine. And many of you are, are familiar with this. But then the Black Sea, it doesn't look like it on a map. But when you research it, and if you're familiar with that area of the world, the Black Sea connects to what? It flows into the Mediterranean Sea. Well, the Mediterranean Sea connects with what? Israel. This is a very strategic spot for Russia to take Crimea. And they went into Crimea, and their number one naval port for that part of the world is there. And they, they decided, we can't lose this. And Ukraine said, we'll lease this space to you till 2042. Russia says, we don't want to roll the dice. They have the power. They're more powerful than Ukraine. And they just roll in, and they decide to take uh, Crimea. And so... As we look at this, then they started to construct six new submarines to be at this naval base in Crimea. You know the kind of damage you can do with submarines that have this kind of access? What are they doing from this part of the world? What, have they, what has Russia done from this naval base in the past? I read from an article, it says, which has recently resumed permanent operations in eastern uh, Mediterranean, extending Russia's reach and enhancing its prestige in the region. The Mediterranean task force was recently used to deliver military equipment to Syria, to remove Syrian chemical weapons, and to conduct anti-piracy operations near Somalia. The Russians are not dumb. Putin is no idiot, and he understands the military strategies that come with taking Crimea. 
Now, I don't know how fast that this is going to progress. I have no idea. All as I know is I was sitting watching this year unfold and Russia's on the move. I'm going, this is significant that they've taken Crimea. It gets them that much closer to Israel and ultimately attacking Israel. Now, what's their motivation from Ezekiel 38? Is they look at Israel and they go, Israel has all of this wonderful bounty. And that's there. So I expect that Russia is going to continue to struggle economically, or at least leading up to the days of this fulfillment, and there's going to be great financial motivation for them to come and attack Israel. That's the lure. That's the hook. Just go down to Israel and take all of the bounty that has been given to them. Aren't you loving the gas prices? Man, it's like a 20-year flashback. I forgot what a dollar eighty-three looked like <laughs> at the gas pump. We filled up the minivan this week, and it was twenty-eight dollars. And the minivan was pretty much empty before we filled it up. I remember a time where it cost us close to ninety dollars, and I'm like, oh! you know, we can't drive anywhere. What are we doing tonight? We're staying home. That's what we're doing. You want entertainment? Walk the dog. <laughs> now it's like, let's go to Denver. Yeah. You know, I couldn't believe it. It's wonderful for us. Then you turn on the news and you hear some of these things like, some of the oil companies are really suffering at the price of gas going down. And who cares? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm sure they can handle it, right? One of the things that is the bigger ramifications of this is it's really affecting Russia. Russia is a huge exporter of oil, and when the prices go down, they're saying their overall economy can be affected up to 40%. That's huge. So one of the things they're trying to do to make up for this, and this is true, I'm not making this up, is in the news today, Russia said they're going to discount the cost of, of vodka. So they're wanting to sell more vodka. I guess they're thinking that'll maybe take the edge off a little bit. <laughs> if they, they're trying to boost their economy in any way. But the, the recent past, as we look back at Russia, is they're struggling. Their, their, their economy is really struggling. And leading up to this ultimate invasion, is there going to be that motivation to come down to Israel to take that? So get familiar with Ezekiel 38. Keep your eyes on Russia. Russia is going to continue to form alliances with some of the Arab world, with Iran and Libya. And when coming into these last days, there will be a, an attack on God's people. And finally, God will say, this is enough. And my, my fury has come. And so that's a sign that we keep an eye on. The last one we're going to look at tonight is Matthew 24. So if you would turn me, with me to the Gospels to Matthew chapter 24. We'll start in verse 1 and read down through verse 14 and, and highlight a few here. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. The temple had gone through a, a mass renovation, and they were impressed by this new building project. And Jesus said to them, do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another 
that shall not be thrown down. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, which would be AD 70. In the minds of the disciples, the end of the temple meant the end of the world. In verse 3, now as he sat on Mount Olives, which is the location that he ascended into heaven, the location he'll descend, that he'll return. So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So what are, what are the signs of your second coming? What are the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and of rumor of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. And these are the beginnings of the sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, and the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures till the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all the nations, and the end will come. So three of these stand out to me uh, this evening as we look at 2014. And the first is nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In the Greek, the word nation is ethnos, and it speaks of people group. It's, it's speaking of one ethnic group against an, another ethnic group. It's racial tension. And have we seen throughout the world an escalation of racial tension? Absolutely. And this is a sign of the ultimate coming of the second coming of Jesus Christ. What's the beauty of the church? The beauty of the church is there is a decease, a death of racial tension. The moment that you come to know Christ as your savior, any racial prejudice should pass away. Any racial prejudice should be buried with Jesus Christ and were risen in newness of life. God created all, he loves all, he died for all, and in the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's not one ethnic group and, and another ethnic group. But outside of Christ, we see this continue of division of nation against nation. And then we find kingdom and kingdom, and this speaks of rulers, rulers rising up against other rulers. This is Russia and Ukraine. This is countries going against each other. And we also see an escalation of kingdom against kingdom. So this year, I think there's a focus on those signs. Also pestilence we find in Matthew 24. What comes to your mind this year when you think of pestilence? Ebola. Ebola. 7,800 people have died in 2014 from Ebola. The current outbreak, this isn't the first year that there's been Ebola in Africa, but the current outbreak in Western Africa, they've traced it back now to a tree, a hollow tree, where children in a village play to one two-year-old boy who started the epidemic. It's a disease that dwells in animals that goes from animals to people and a lot of times in bats and it's those that hunt bats and eat bats. So there was some confusion 
on how did this two-year-old boy contract a disease while he was playing in this hollow tree where the bats live. This was the playground for the children in this village, and Ebola went from there. And you have understood the kind of fear that comes to play in this kind of pestilence, you know. People stopped moving to Texas for about two weeks there when Ebola came to, came to Texas. And there's just this real heightened fear that all of a sudden there's this disease that we can't control. And it's heartbreaking to, to see people lose their lives. And my heart has been touched to, to see families lose a, a loved one. And then because of the nature of this disease, you can't be with your family members as they're passing away. You know, you can't bury them in the way that would provide even just a little bit of comfort because of the fear of, of that type of, of disease. And as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, this is a sign of my coming. And the reason that God gives these signs is their birth pains leading up to the ultimate second coming of Jesus Christ. God in his love is saying, hey, hey world, this is not your home. Hey world, this is not permanent. Hey, world, look for my son, Jesus Christ, to to come back. But I think this year definitely points to the pestilence. And then also we find tribulation in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This year, 2014, has been recorded as the greatest year of martyrdom in recent history that there's been more Christians that have been killed in the name of Jesus Christ than any year prior that we can refer to in modern history. In fact, from 2012 to 2013, the number of Christian martyrs went up 100%. Just from 2012 to 2013, and that was primarily because of Syria, because of ISIS. ISIS alone killed more people in Syria than was being killed in the rest of the world. Church, sometimes we don't want to believe this. We don't know who to believe. But this is very, very real. And ISIS has been very targeted on going in and killing Christians and killing other minorities. But if people will not bow their name to Allah, then they're killed in a brutal fashion. And we look in scriptures and we see this is a sign of the coming of Jesus Christ. Another hot spot has been Nigeria. Nigeria has just experienced amazing atrocities. This is a picture of Nigerian children. And I know you've seen in the news this year of Nigerian girls getting kidnapped by Islamists. And what's taking place? We're seeing a fulfillment of scripture before our very eyes. And I know that this is heavy upon our hearts and it should be, but another part of the story that's not being told that we're hearing from missionaries that are on the front lines, that we're hearing back from the Egyptian church is revival is taking place throughout the Middle East like it's never happened before. And throughout the history of the church, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When Christians die for their faith in the name of Jesus Christ, Christianity explodes. And these have been very difficult areas of the world to reach. What have we seen in Egypt over the last few years? They have their freedom, they have elections, the Muslim Brotherhood is elected, then the people decide for themselves, we don't want this radical Islam here. We don't want the Muslim Brotherhood. They revolt against that. And what has taken place with that black backdrop 
is many, many, many people coming to know Christ as their Savior in Egypt. God is greater than the persecution. He's going to continue to move through the persecution. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but I do think we're asleep spiritually if we're not seeing and hearing the music. There is going to be a cost for our faith in Jesus Christ. Or we're seeing our culture change. We don't live in a biblical culture. We're living in a culture that is against the truth of Scripture. And so when you stand up for Scripture, when you say, I'm going to hold to what the Scripture says, it's going to cost you something. And that really excites me. You're saying, what's wrong with you? You're sick in the head, you know? Why should that excite you? Because you know what? That eliminates room for us to be lukewarm. And I think the persecution... And I can even feel it in our own church. There's a spiritual that's hunger that's happening because we know we've got to take it seriously. We know that it's going to cost us something. And there was a time in our country where you could just say you were a Christian and who, who cares if you understood it or not? That was the cultural thing. Of course you're a Christian. No one just says they're a Christian anymore. It's not cultural to be a Christian anymore in, in the United States of America. You've got to explain why you're a Christ follower. You've got to try to let people know what, what that means. And this is a sign of, of the coming that, that Christ gives here. And you're saying, wow, this just seems like a lot of bad news. Yeah. What a great way to end 2014. <laughs> I think the enemy tries to come in and put a lot of fear in our hearts with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But for the early church, the church that we read about in the New Testament, there was never fear involved with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And God sets a precedent about his character that he doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. And Jesus comes in his second coming to bring judgment upon the wicked. And we're righteous because we're in Christ Jesus. So his second coming is not us anticipating his judgment upon our lives. It's us anticipating the rapture of the church. Christ to take us home. Christ to glorify himself. And as we look at the second coming of Jesus Christ, it shouldn't fill our hearts with fear. We shouldn't be doomsday. We shouldn't walk around with our head down going, things are going to get worse before they get better. There is truth to that statement. But what this is all leading to is for Christ to set all things right. And what it does provide in our lives is some urgency. Time really does matter. Time does matter. I don't know if Christ is going to come in our lifetime or not. I really don't. But I do know that we're closer than anybody else has ever been. And it will affect our lives if we believe that he could come in our lifetime. If Christ doesn't come in our lifetime, 70 years is not very much. 80 years is not very much. And we're not guaranteed that. We're not guaranteed that at all. We've seen in the life of our fellowship this year, many go home to be with the Lord long before 70, long before 80. We're not promised that. Every day is a gift. And this is what God intends. It's very simple. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. Live each day to know him more and to make him known. God wants to use your life. And there's that sense of urgency as we look for the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to end this year and in a sense begin the new year in communion tonight. And one of the aspects of communion when Christ gave us his instruction is he says, as you take communion, 
you proclaim his death till he comes. So there's a reflection upon his death, his broken body, his shed blood. As Chance talked about during worship, what is it that God's been identifying in your life this year? Agree with God in that manner. Confess it to the Lord. Confess that sin. Be broken before him. Apply his broken body, his shed blood. Receive forgiveness and the power for transformation. But also proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming, absolutely. And as you lift that cup, you're proclaiming in faith, Jesus, I'm looking forward to your coming. There's the day that I'm going to celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is just a small foreshadowing to that. And every time you lift the cup, we're going to take communion a lot until Jesus Christ comes home. And every time you take communion, reflect on the past of his shed blood, his resurrection, but also look forward to the future. Go, Jesus, you're going to return. No matter what happens in this world, no one can ever take away the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, there's an opportunity tonight to be saved, an opportunity tonight to turn to him in repentance and say, Christ, would you forgive me? And I want to speak to you very honestly and very pointedly. There's an aspect of Christ where he's extremely gracious, where we come to him in brokenness and faith, accepting his death and resurrection. But there's an also an aspect to Christ that's very fearful, And if you reject his broken body, you reject his shed blood, he does come in judgment. And I don't think it's angry. I don't think it's vengeful. We know it's not God's will or his desire. I think that God brings judgment with tears coming down his face. It's his last resort. It's his last option. But ultimately, because he's just, he will bring that judgment. He doesn't want that judgment to fall upon you. He wants to give you grace. He wants to give you forgiveness and salvation. But you have to turn to him and say, Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe that you died for my sins and rose again. Be the Lord of my life. And as we come and take communion, there's going to be a ministry team available on the sides. Let somebody on that team know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. If you came with a believer tonight, you're sitting next to someone that you know knows Christ, turn to them and say, would you pray with me? I need to receive Christ as my Savior, but the important thing is that you respond tonight. And if you choose not to respond, in love we're praying that the hound dogs of heaven don't leave you alone, that the Holy Spirit just continues to show you your need for Jesus Christ. As you spend time with the Lord this evening, pray that the Lord would show us individually and a church family steps of faith that he would have for us. These things are true, and if we believe they're true, then we have a responsibility to live it out in our lives. Agreed? Say, God, we want to live our lives for you. We want to seek first the kingdom of God. Let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we do uh, cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We, We desire for you to come. And yet, Lord, we know why you're waiting. And that's for more and more people to come to know you. So would you give us a heart for the things that are on your heart? Would you really bless this time of communion? As we go into the new year, Lord, would your hand be upon us? You tell us in your word to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So we pray for the Jewish people that many would come to know Christ as their Savior, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come. We look to you, Jesus, and tonight we lift the cup in faith that you will come. We proclaim your death till you come. In Jesus' name. Amen.